I'll be reading from Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this morning, as you heard, we're going to look at temples, looking at the metaphor that is used to describe the church. And uh, the book of Ephesians is a strong, strong example of this as Paul uses this terminology. But before we dive into, uh, dive into the text, uh, I believe Paul uses this illustration not because it, it was a great idea he thought of, um, but it's actually because this is tremendously part of the culture during Paul's day. And so even for these people in Ephesus, uh, they understand temple worship. And so to help kind of paint a picture of the world that this letter is being written to, uh, I want to describe for you for a few minutes uh, what temple worship was like. And forgive the history major in me as I love this stuff. And so I, uh, I will get to other things, but I think this really helps set the table uh, for talking about the church being a temple. So in the ancient Middle East, uh, just like the Old Testament tabernacle, Temples were incredibly ornate. There was great effort put into the design of them. They were used for the, the, the top materials to build these. Uh, and so there were even competitions as you went city to city to see whose temple looked the biggest and the grandest. And it became this macho thing of who can build the biggest temple. Every city uh, had been in the Mediterranean was once under Greek rule and then under Roman rule. And so the Greek gods... Uh, reigned supreme in the, in the temple world. And so each city, instead of building temples to every god, each city picked the god that best fit their city. And so if they were a port city that had uh, so much of their economies based on boats coming in and out, they would build a temple to Poseidon, the god of the sea, to go, if we can keep you happy, then those ships will come in safely, that we can be prosperous as a city, and so on. And so for many of these cities, as they're building these temples, they're going, well, what would demonstrate uh, the God that we worship? What would demonstrate uh, to everybody that this is who our city is about? This is who the God of the city is. And so as they're competing with each other and building these temples, uh, they made a point of it that the glory of the temple was at the very top. So as these temples are built with these pillars, they weren't just to hold the roof on. They were actually to draw the eye up to the top, to the statue that was at the top, to the symbols that were on the top, so that even people from far away, if they couldn't see the whole thing, they could see the top and recognize right away what this whole city is about. And so the glory was found at the top of these temples. There was specific instruction given to temple workers. How do you become a temple worker? Uh, what, what is that uh, made of? Are you from a certain group in the city? Uh, what jobs are given within this temple. And there were a variety of those. Um, another point is that no one was to speak directly to the deity being worshipped. It was very rare that a commoner could walk into a temple and get all the way to the throne or whatever represented the presence of that God. There were so many temple workers that were there to accept sacrifices or to accept prayers or to intercede for people uh, that you couldn't get past them. 
You couldn't get past some of the rituals that only as these cities grew these temples larger, if you were one of the major donors or if you were really somebody in the town, you were given extra permission. But, but these temples basically had bouncers, head guys who were going, you're not on the list. This is as far as you go. These temples were built to withstand many weather elements of rain, uh, of flooding, um, uh, of even fire. That If they were made of these stones, that even fire wouldn't take it down. They were made to sustain high winds. But there was one element in nature that almost across the board, every temple in the ancient world uh, met as their Achilles heel, and that was earthquakes. So looking back at the major temples, the major monuments and statues of that time, they were great unless an earthquake happened, and then they crumbled. Um, The presence of so many temples in all of these cities communicated to Paul something that he went, we can work with this. That while there's so many that are misguided, this tells us that there's something in humanity that says we need to worship that we're designed to worship, that just staying uh, in, with me is not enough, that there's, there's a reason I exist, and it's to be able to worship something better than me, that as people have grown older, they realize I have flaws. I have things that I'm not in control of that I really thought I was in my younger years. And so there's got to be something, and it was very popular to worship in a temple, but there's something that says this is what I need to be doing. And so Paul was encouraged by that. But the last thing I think that's worthy of note is that the average person, the commoner, whether they were Jew or Gentile, whether they were local to the town or a a foreigner, that you knew which temples you could go into and how far into that temple you could go. And here's what I mean. In in Jerusalem, the the temple that Solomon built, that, that got destroyed, that Zerubbabel rebuilt, as it was there in the time of Paul, just before Paul, as Herod is taking over this area, right? The same King Herod with Jesus. This Herod is, is going, at this point, the temple in Jerusalem is modest. It's nice, it's ornate, but it's not quite as grand as some of these other temples. And so he says, I want to expand this. I want to make everybody want to come to my town and see how great my temple is. And so he builds these massive courtyards and stairs and, and things to be able to go, let's have as many people come as possible And so even the wailing wall today in Jerusalem is part of that extent of the temple. And so the Jews who are worshiping there are saying, well, wait, like there's a a certain form of worship that we need to be doing, and if we're just letting everybody in, that's going to distort and water down what we're doing. And so they, they made an agreement, and it was an agreement that many other temples had done, and they said, can we build a wall? And so in Jerusalem, in the temple, there was a four and a half foot wall put up around the sanctuary with enough doors and gates for the Jews to get in and to keep everybody else out. And to make sure that this point was made, they put up 13 stone slabs in front of the gates. And they inscribed in it in multiple languages to make sure anybody who was visiting would know. And on that stone slab said this, No foreigner should go within the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will be responsible for his ensuing death. It's a nice welcome mat at a temple, isn't it? But this is the world that 
this church in Ephesus is living with. They're going, we know what temples we can go into and we know how far into them we're welcome. And so to a Gentile believer in Ephesus, they're going, we, we want to worship God and we've got the truth, but we have so many limitations put on us. And there's now growing hostility between the Jews who are inside the temple going, well, we're the chosen people. You can worship from out there and do whatever you want, but in here is where the, the real good stuff is happening. And they're outside going, why can't we come in? We, we're worshiping the same God you are. We're, we're, we're trying to, to praise Jesus the same way you are. And they're going, no, 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 you're different. You're a foreigner. You're not one of us. And as you can imagine, the growing hostility that's happening around these walls inside the temples. And so using this temple illustration for Paul is going, this is your world. You live in a city that is dominated by temples. And in fact, the city of Ephesus, when we look back at the ancient wonders of the world, like the pyramids and the hanging gardens of Babylon, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus is one of those seven. It was so magnanimous. It was so huge that it was drawing thousands of people a day. Here's a depiction of what an artist believes it looked like and what you can still find today. And so Paul is addressing a city that is going, this, this is how your town worships. And let me tell you a little bit about this really quick. The temple of Artemis, Artemis was a Greco-Roman goddess of fertility and prosperity. So if you wanted anything to grow, you went to the temple of Artemis. If you wanted to have a bigger family, you would go make a sacrifice at the temple of Artemis. If you wanted your business to grow, if you wanted your crops to grow, if you wanted uh, anything, your finances to be more prosperous, just the fact that anything would grow, you would go to this temple. It's quite an amazing American temple. We would say the same thing, that of going, if I want things to get bigger and be prosperous, this is where I need to go. Artemis was the most worshipped goddess in the Mediterranean world, even more than those ranking higher than her in Greek mythology and Roman mythology. Her likeness appeared on coins and paintings and statues. At the peak of the temple, over 10,000 workers were required daily. Huge sums of money were entrusted to the keeping of Artemis, resulting in this temple becoming the banking center of Asia. Artemis became known as the guardian deity or the savior goddess. As she, her work was attributed with helping women during childbirth and helping usher the dead into the, under, into the afterlife. And so they said if she is a part of the beginning of life and the end of life, she's the goddess of life. And so this was who everybody was worshiping in Ephesus. In fact, in Acts 19, we find this church, this young church, has a clash with the followers of Artemis in Ephesus. So by the time of Paul, Ephesus has become enormously wealthy. It's become enormously focused on what's going on here. And so Paul is going, I need to use a temple analogy to help you see that the temple of God, this church that is starting and taking off, how different it needs to look than the temple you know and see every day. 
And so there are four things that we're going to look at that, that Paul highlights in verses 19 to 22 that he also highlights in the rest of the book of Ephesians, and we'll get to that in a minute. But these are the four things we're going to address this morning that I believe Paul wants us to see when it, when it comes to us as a temple of God, and that's who can come in, what's at the core, how does this work, what's our culture that's different than theirs, and what's my role? As a worshiper, what gets to be my role? And this outline is going to appear throughout the talk this morning, and so if you don't get them all down, you'll see it a lot. Uh, I do encourage you to give yourself a little room uh, as, you, as you go through that, but I want to jump right in uh, to verse 19, looking at the idea of who can come in. Paul writes, now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. He's using the exact same language that appeared on these stones that said, get out. He said, you're no longer that when it comes to the temple of God. A little earlier in Ephesians 2 and verse 14, he says, for he himself, talking about Jesus, Jesus, he is our peace who has made us both, the, the inside and the outside people, made us both one, and get this, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's saying there's not some metaphorical wall here, some imaginative wall. It's going, when you go to worship, there's a literal wall that should not be there when it comes to the temple of God. As we look at the life of Jesus, just as Matt prayed, as Curtis went into last week, that person after person after person that got to encounter Jesus that even said, please, Jesus, hear me. There was not one person. There was not one condition, one language, one issue that somebody brought to, to Jesus' feet that he said, I don't have time for you. You're not welcome here. Whether you were sick, blind, leprous, he said, I, you're welcome. You're able to receive love and forgiveness. To those who were children, to those who were prodigals, he said, there is nothing that should prevent you from worshiping me. There is nothing that I want standing in the way. And so he very clearly says here, who can come into the temple of God? He said, everybody can. There are no bouncers in our temple workers. So what's at the core? If this is open to everybody, what are we about? We get to Ephesians 2 verse 20. He says, this church having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So how does Jesus, what makes him this chief cornerstone? It's amazing to me the language that Paul is using here in regard to temple work because all the glory was going where in a temple? At the top. All the attention was to go, this is what I want you to recognize, what's at the top of the structure, and yet Paul uses the word foundation, cornerstone, the bottom piece of the temple to describe Jesus. This is very helpful for their theology because he's saying what I want you to get with Jesus is that was the whole purpose of him coming, was to go, I want to bring glory to the Father and I want to help everybody see the glory of the Father. Jesus prays in John 17, verse 4, saying, God, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave to me. 
If you think of even the Lord's Prayer of Him saying, God, it's Your will, not my will, that I want to be done. I want to draw them to You. And so Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the starting point of the temple of God. He's what can be built upon. And even thinking of the issue of earthquakes and the effect they have on temples, that Jesus can be the chief cornerstone because as we look in Matthew 27, verses 50 and 51, Jesus is on the cross and He says, it is finished. He says, into your hands I commit my spirit and what happens when He's finished saying those things? An earthquake happens and it hits a temple, the temple of God in Jerusalem. But the temple doesn't crumble, but it changes. It says, now the God that you had to bring sacrifices to and hope the priests could get the sacrifices into God, that, that the highest priest one day a year on the Day of Atonement can take this sacrifice to present it to God Almighty. Now all of that process is done. The, the curtain in the temple that separated the commoners and God Himself now can be torn and split in two because of what Jesus has done. And now a sinner, now a common person who's going, I have, I have nothing that I can bring except to, to grovel and, and to beg for forgiveness. Now I can actually not give that to another sinner. I can take that all the way to God Himself. That He wants to hear me. He's able to understand what's going on. He, he's able to not just go, all right, I'm ready to listen, but I'm ready to pour my love on you. I'm ready to pour my forgiveness on you. And all these other temples where it was going, I can only go this far and I have to stop. Now, because of Jesus, I can go all the way into the one I'm worshiping. And he wants to hear from me. He's the chief cornerstone that this whole temple is built on. And anything that is going, we want to glorify God, but we don't want this. It's not a temple of God. It's not the body of Christ. We are designed around this foundation. And as it talks about the apostles and prophets, I want to make sure it's clear that, that they didn't take the foundation of Jesus and say, let's add to the gospel. It was simply going, because all this is true, and we're not waiting for the cement to dry. It's, it's rock solid. It's what our whole thing is built on. Now the apostles and prophets are going, we can take this truth and spread it out. So Thomas hears and lives the life with Jesus and goes, this is life-changing. I need to take this to India. And Philip in Acts goes, I need to take this truth and go to Africa. And many of the disciples are going, this needs to not just stay in Jerusalem. This needs to go out. And so this truth of who Jesus is as this temple is being built is going, Jesus is it. And these, these prophets and disciples have built on this structure. And so if we're a temple built on Jesus, supported and spread by the apostles and saints, how do, we think, how do things work around here? What's the culture of our temple? Verse 21 says this, that in Jesus, the whole building is being fitted together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Notice how verse 20 uses a specific verb saying, having been built. It's past tense. It's done. Now it's going. There's a present tense activity that the church needs to be about. And it's saying having being fitted together. It's an active verb. It's going. Those outside and those inside need to be one. 
that we need to be unifying. We need to be growing into a holy temple. I appreciate the wording here that there's, there's a goal and we're not there yet. But there's still work to be done in unifying us. There's still work uh, and there's going to be with anything that's growing, some growing pains. There's going to be this is new territory for us. So what does this look like? And he's saying in, in, in the challenge of that, in the commissioning of that, we have to keep the core the core. That if that's solid, then we're going, then, then as a brother and as a sister in Christ, we may disagree on some things, but if that's the core, if we agree on this, then we can be unified. As we think of temples and places of worship, any arena, any sports arena or concert hall is a place of worship as well. It's people of a variety of different backgrounds coming together to go, uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not carding you as to what political party you vote for. I'm not worried about what your financial status is. We're here to celebrate what's going on right there. We have this in common, and we're here first and foremost to worship what's going on. We're going to sing the songs, right? We're going to wear the uniform. We're going to do whatever we can because that's what we have in common. And because you're at least a fan like me, I can give you the reasonable doubt to go, you're trying to cheer on your team too, so how can we, like Curtis said, be a family now? If we go, this is very true of us, and this is where it starts, at Christ. That our differences are things that we need to be working out while recognizing that Christ has changed all of our lives, and that's the message that we need to be presenting. So now, as Curtis described us as a family being united, that we have deep affection for each other. Carrie and I had the opportunity in October to go down to Nashville for a few days, and while we were there one night, we kind of said, well, the options are go to the Country Music Hall of Fame or go to a Nashville Predators hockey game. We're not big fans of either, but we're less fans of country music, so we went to a hockey game. Thank you. I appreciate that, Jacob. And as we're showing up, we're realizing we're one of like 12 people not wearing Nashville Predator stuff in the stadium. You ever been in that situation? You're like, I am definitely a, like an out-of-towner coming in. But as we're cheering on the home team, because we're smart visitors that don't root for the other people, we're cheering on the home team, and it was 5-2, to 5-3. to three. We're losing. And then, of course, this epic third period happens, and they score a third goal, fourth goal, fifth goal, and in the last minute, the sixth and winning goal, and the place is just going nuts. And as we're celebrating what's happening, because we're standing and cheering, we're like getting into this, this was really cool, and the people next to us are high-fiving us and spilling beer on us, and like there's just this camaraderie of like, yeah, we're in this together, and it was like, this is, this is us going to, the other stuff is not as important as going, we're all focused on what we're here to do. And so as a church, he's saying as a temple, it's so easy to get caught up in uh, the, the little details of, well, I want this carved on the pillar, and I want this in the, in the gardens. And No, 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 no. Are we still focused on, as a temple, the worship of Jesus as he's trying to go, please, I want to draw our attention to the glory of God? Is that the focus of what we're doing? And I love how Paul incorporates all three members of the Trinity in these short verses. He's going, our goal is to glorify God the Father. And our core is on Jesus Christ and what He's done. He goes, but as a temple, that's not it. There's more to it. There's this Holy Spirit that's a part of this that is going to blow your mind, Gentile worshipers. 
that it's, it's something that's just going to be so amazing. And he gets to, what's my role? He says, in this temple, who can come in? All can come in. What's at our core? Jesus is at our core. How does this work? It works in unity and striving for unity. But what's my role? Catch the parts of the Trinity here as we read verse 22. It says, in whom, talking about Jesus, in Jesus you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Verse 18, he says, for through Jesus we all have access in one Spirit to the Father. Luke eleven thirteen 13 describes more of, of this gift of the Holy Spirit. So now as worshipers are going, uh, if I'm going to worship God, I've got to find this temple. I've got to go to this temple. And Paul's going, no, 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 get this. The God that you're worshiping so loves you and so has a mission for you that he's not waiting for you to simply bring people to the temple. He's sending the Holy Spirit to you so you can be a mobile temple. So everywhere you go, the love of God can be demonstrated and the worship of God can be demonstrated because he's there with you. Luke eleven thirteen 13 says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Ephesians 1, 13 says, In Jesus you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And in Romans 8.26, he goes, here's something that's very unique that the Spirit is going to do. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. If we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words saying, I'm sending the Holy Spirit to you. And so what's your role now is to be a mobile temple that demonstrates the love of God. We're to love. As I mentioned, Paul uses the rest of this book of Ephesians to hit these four points. In Ephesians 3, he talks about the mystery of the gospel and that it's at first the gospel was for the Jews and then Jesus said, no, 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 I'm actually here to love everybody. And so the mystery of the gospel is that this grace and this forgiveness is for everybody who's not Jewish. And that their eyes are going, this isn't just in little Israel on this little dot on the planet. This is for the whole planet. And so he goes into explaining the gospel is for everybody. That's the great mystery is there's no haves and have nots. There's no people that are rejected and have no shop. At the end of chapter 3, Paul talks about the core being Christ, and he prays this over the church of Ephesus. He says, I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith richly, rooted and grounded, unwavering in the face of false teaching, because you're facing it every time you step outside in other worship. Stay rooted on Christ. Chapter 4, it gets to what, what this is all about and talking about unity in the body of the believers. He gets into the body metaphor of going, in every body you've got all these different parts doing different things, and if something isn't working right, the whole body hurts. And so we have to be working together in this drive for unity. But then this last point of what's our role, Paul takes chapter 5 and chapter 6, he goes, I want to explain a number of these things. I want to put it in, in context with the roles that you have to help you see what walking in love can look like. 
And so in chapter 5, he says, I want to address husbands and wives right away. It's a passage that's often read at weddings. But it's God saying, I want you to understand that, that for husbands, for your wife, I have certain things uh, that are about me, that are about God, that I want her to experience. I want her to know. And so when it comes to her knowing that I, God the Father, will never leave her, I will never forsake her, I will never abandon her, I will never unlove her, you get to be the walking mobile temple to demonstrate those things to her. And wives, to your husbands, I want him to know the joy of the Lord. I want him to know peace. I want him to know patience. I want him to know my love. And so you get to be a walking temple demonstrating those things to him. This is why marriage is so important in Scripture because it's not just going, hey, it's two people. We gave it a shot. didn't work. We'll try it somewhere else. He's going, I want you to see this is the example of the relationship between Christ and the church that you are an example of the love of God to those you are closest to, to everyone you come in contact with. And so he's going, for a husband and wife, this is what you're called to be, to this specific person that I've put in your life. Chapter 6, it gets into parents and children. And going, children, please recognize that this parent is there to demonstrate a love of, of a leader, a love of somebody trying to guide you to the truth. And so, parents, you have a tremendous responsibility to reflect that to your children. And at the end of chapter 6, he even gets into an employee-employer relationship. These are people he's saying you interact with all the time. And I'm calling you to be a mobile temple that worships God to reflect these things to those around you. I pray that that's something that we can grab a hold of. I'd encourage you to read through the rest of Ephesians. That's the whole point of the book as he's going, I, I want you to get this. That do we have a place, or as we gather in this building, are there people that we may be prejudiced against? Are there people that we would go, uh, we're going to go a different way out so we don't have to interact with them? That's not the church we're called to be. And I hope, I realize there are people here probably too who have gone, that's my experience that I've shown up to places, and I've shown up here perhaps even, God forbid, that that was what I knew. People didn't really come talk to me. I didn't feel really welcome. That that's our call now as a church to go, we don't want anybody to feel like because I look a certain way or talk a certain way or have this or this that I'm not welcome here. I know there can be conflict within the church with people that have been here a long time, and we just go, I just avoid them. Just go to a different service so I don't see them. If we're family, we're going, I want to work this out. I want to work this out for our health. I want to work this out so that people who come in and see aren't going, wow, this place is a mess. They're not even working to try and get along. Like We can at least get the effort, but we see people dodging each other. Are we a place that strives for unity? And do we recognize the roles that we have of being mobile temples, being able to demonstrate the love of God and the peace of God and the joy of God in a time where that's certainly something a lot of people are looking for. Will you join me as we pray? Father, I praise you that you have called us. I praise you that you have welcomed us into your presence because of Jesus Christ and that through his work we can communicate with you.
We can talk to you. We can listen to you. We can respond to the reading of your word and the moving of your spirit. God, make us soft to what you're trying to, to change in us. God, as, as Paul addressed, whether that's within our marriage, within our family, within our workplace, but God, that's not it. You want every person that we get to interact with to know your love and that we have the opportunity to share that with them. God, we praise you that we don't all have to congregate in one place on this planet to worship you, that you have given us your spirit. That, God, we can worship throughout our week, but yet you also call us to worship together, to work on our unity, to celebrate together the truth of who you are. So, Father, we ask your blessing on us as we strive to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.